Okay, we are back. It's Thursday, November 16th, and we've got some Chapo coming at you. Uh, it's me and Felix today, and uh, I will say that we have already checked our John Dolan dance card at least a couple times on this show, yes. but we're filling out the full Radio Warner dance ticket today, and I'm very pleased to announce that we're joined today by Mark Ames. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, it's really, it's my honor to be on the show. Um, I have to be honest with you guys. Uh, maybe this is sad. I don't know, but like really since the COVID weirdness and sort of the collapse of politics in 2020, and I just, for the first time in my long life, I really, it's like I lost interest in keeping up in politics or thinking something was, it's not quite the right way to put it. I just got so disgusted with politics. I didn't want to look at it for a while. So all my politics, all my current events, I literally get from your show. Uh, so like gay Ron Santos. Okay. Now I know yeah. everything I need to know. Okay. <laughs> Mark is uh, you're imbibing the digital fentanyl from shop. House. And, yes. and as long as we're exchange, as long as we're, as long as we're sucking each other off here, I would like to credit you. And it, it is your brave journalism that is solely responsible for getting me into the fall and Marky e. Smith. So oh, really? I, I, have oh, to, cool. I have to pass along my, my hearty, hearty thanks to you for, for that, uh, for introducing oh, yeah. me to the, the, the weird and frightening world of the fall. <laughs> yeah, I actually interviewed him when I was out in, in Moscow, I mean, by phone out in Moscow. And <laughs> this is such a classic, like, dumbass dork move. But I, I, I lined this whole thing up, did this interview. He was so, he shocked me because he's, he's so such a notorious asshole to everybody. <laughs> um, and he Not was an so, easy interview. No, but he was so charming and nice to me. It was, I swear to God, it was like, be like, well, Mark, he'd always use my name. Well, Mark, not like that song, Paint, paint Mark. No, <laughs> Mark uh, no, it was actually like, well, Mark, that's a good question, Mark. It was like he was reading, you know, um, Dale Carnegie or something. Like it was, it was, it kind of freaked me out how charming he was. And then I, you know, finished the interview, went on for, you know, 20, 30 minutes while he was recording something. And, um, and then I went back to play it and my, my recording device, which would record both me and then whoever I'm speaking to in the phone. You only heard me. And so it's like <laughs> no. my girlfriend in Canada who doesn't exist sort of thing. You know? <laughs> well, I guess uh, I'd, I'd like to begin uh, with, a, I guess, a, a Marky e. Smith related question, which is who, who makes, makes the, the Nazis? Nazis? And I suppose I'm going to answer my own question. Uh, Joe Biden, president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mark, I, I, want, I want to begin because I, like, I, obviously like the, the, the war on Gaza is, is dominating the news and certainly my consciousness. And I'd like to begin with what I woke up to this morning, which was seeing a press conference at which Joe Biden said that uh, he, had, he had seen evidence of the Hamas terrorist command center underneath the Al-Shifa hospital. And then when asked what that evidence is, said, I'm not going to show it to you. Now, Mark, you're like a longtime observer of you know, empire, sort of per the perception management of empire and propaganda. And I'll just I went through like a three stage thought process here, first of which being. How the fuck could they possibly do this? Like, how could they come up with even lazier evidence? They don't even trying. Like the Iraq War WMD stuff make this made this stuff look like a, you know, like the Iraq War WMD stuff looked like a Stanley Kubrick movie in terms of how well prepared it is, in, mm -hmm. in, 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 as opposed to this nonsense. Number two, I thought, did they just have blackmail on every U.S. politician? <laughs> and then third, the, the 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 most frightening conclusion that I that I've come to is that like the totally amateurish nature of all this propaganda is sort of the point. And by that, yeah. I mean, like, it's a it's a demonstration of power 
in that they're proving to you that they can do and say anything and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on like uh, I mean, of, of, yeah, of those number three, I think is is definitely the closest. I mean, there's also just that Biden is a doddering old, you know, uh, genocide heir who is very easy to dupe um, and a very willing dupe. And um, it is it, it has been really shocking, though, how it seems like nobody's been really trying to fool us much. And and at first it seemed like that that can't possibly be happening because we can all see this. But after a while, yeah, you do start to think, well, maybe this is the whole point because it drives home your powerlessness. I mean, actually, when uh, John and I recorded Radio Warner yesterday and he had found some article by uh, somebody from, a, I don't remember which media outlet it was, but it was a very pro-Zionist, pro-Israel, uh, I think American media outlet. And it was talking about, you know, the, the protests and how Israel's having some problems. But at the very end of it, it said, you know, but but as experience has shown over the decades, no need to worry about all this because ultimately America's Israel policy and in general its foreign policy um, is not at all guided by popular opinion. And both parties will do what is what Israel needs because they think it's in America's interest and the, you know, and the interests are aligned. And I and I I mean that's just totally outrageous, and it's and it's true too. Like. Um, you know, the ruling governing class, the Acela court or whatever it is, really does believe that their their interests and the interests of the U.S. empire are lockstep aligned with Israel's. And and I don't think that's true. And I don't know how long it's going to take and how much blood's going to have to be spilled before that starts to crack. But, you know, I think like to them, it's all self-evident. Our team got hit. We need to kill lots of people on the other side. What What, what don't you idiots get? Um, so I don't think they're trying to hard because they think it should be self-evident. Yeah, I found that like a lot of um, well, a lot of the White House stuff, but specifically the shit that's coming from Biden is it's a product of his age, mm-hmm. both in the, you know, confusion with like tricking himself into thinking he saw the beheaded babies <laughs> or yeah. like now with I guess he like he saw uh, like Davy Crockett nukes under the hospital <laughs> that no one showed the press, but it that and also like there's a certain like infallibility and invulnerability of Israel that like older people believe, like they still believe yes. in the myth of the yes. of the uh, invincibility of the IDF as this brilliant. hyper yeah, right, yeah yeah like ju- this hyper competent like yes. everyone there is a navy seal yep. their intelligence is amazing they're the best at everything and it seems like they keep saying giving a preemptive like blank check for whatever israel wants to do then whatever israel does it just looks you know comical or evil or awful and everyone's pissed off and then they walk it back but with Biden personally, they have to just be like telling him, like, we'll show you the proof tomorrow. Don't worry. You're not going to look like assholes all week. Or they show him some movie with like Lex Luthor in a lair. And like, yeah, that's Hamas. And like, oh, I saw that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like we, we talked about it recently where it's just like th- three weeks ago, the line was Israel categorically would never attack a hospital as part of a military operation. 
And now the line is, of course, we're attacking hospitals. Mm -hmm. the that's where the terrorist command centers are. Here's an artist's rendition of the 10-story <laughs> complex underneath yeah. Al Shifa Hospital. Then they get in the hospital and they're like, look, an MRI machine. How dastardly. <laughs> here, here, here's I, a calendar. I, like, here's a toilet. Uh, you know, like, and it's just... Or like you a know they, they they okay. yeah, yeah. They, they break out some like flintlock dueling pistols you know like <laughs> these were taken off the streets of Gaza today by brave IDF soldiers. Did you see the video of them moving medical supplies into the, uh, the husk of the it, hospital that were clearly just so filled painful. with packing peanuts? It, yeah. It's so painful. It's 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 so it, yeah. It is. It's it does make you feel powerless though. It does have that cumulative yeah. effect. At first you think oh it's so bad and we're calling it out. Surely it's going to crack. But nothing's changed, you know, like and, and it and it just continues. And it and it has like the the um, the one really successful propaganda operation was to make people think that the bombing of the Baptist Hospital was actually an errant PIJ missile. And that made all the mainstream media people ever since then terrified of ever calling out Israel by name for any atrocity like, uh, you know, it's just. Pal people die or Israelis are murdered. <laughs> Palestinians die and Israelis are murdered. Yeah, it's it, it's like none of it can withstand like anyone thinking about it for more than five minutes. Like, why would at this point in like a month in, why would Hamas go, oh, a hospital? Israel will <laughs> never bomb there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, yeah, yeah. You, no, like you said, that's not the that's not the point. The point is just um, confusion by informational deluge. Yeah, they're also like, you know, we have to remember that the Israelis are speaking to each other primarily always, as everybody always does. I mean, we're an American. We always think they must be also talking to us, but they're speaking to each other. And who are they now? Uh, I mean, not only is the IDF and, and the military no longer like. Biden's generation and kind of mine too, but definitely Biden's and boomers, they're all forever stuck in the Radon and Tebby made for TV movie. And that to them is Israel. And they're not like that anymore. They're very incompetent. And the political class are a bunch of fucking loons. You know, they're a bunch of racist, like right wing MAGA freaks. And, um, and so they're talking to each other. And I think that also partly explains like the level, the crudeness of the propaganda because They've been spending years within their own bubble, and that propaganda probably works on each other out in Israel now. It's not the old Israel anymore. I mean, I, yeah. I, think, I think I think one I think one goal of a lot of the ludicrous talking points you see is like maybe Israelis talking to each other, but I think they're trying to also provide uh, ammunition of a sorts to like liberal Zionists in America whose family members are mad at them or like family members. Are, they, it's just like, if you can get, you need to give yeah. people the one thing that they can say. They're like, Oh, there were terrorists hiding in that hospital. Didn't you see the photo of the guns they found there? Yeah. Like they used to like, because like these people in their own mind, like it, it, it cracks must be getting to show, right? They've killed 10,000 people. Like, and then they show no intention of stopping. And like, uh, so, like, the lies are just going to get more and more grotesque. But I, w I want to return to what you said about this generational split, because yeah. one of the things that we're seeing is a lot of polling um, coming out that says that, like, there is a huge dividing line between boomers and then, like, basically anyone under the age of 40 uh, seems to be immune to this kind of propaganda. And it's yeah. and like, I, maybe not now because they're still doing whatever they're doing. But, like, can you see, like, in the future, this could be a, a problem for them. And I think that's why Definitely. that they're ratcheting up the intensity of the slaughter. 
because I think they want to kill or evict as many people as possible before the clock runs out on like unqualified U.S. cultural support for Israel, cultural, political, military, whatever you want to have it. It just it doesn't look like it's going to last another generation. It's really a huge surprise and shock. Like it, you rarely get sort of positive cultural political shocks uh, when you're an American, you know, a lot yeah. of these days. But this is rarely one of them because growing up when I did and growing up when John did and John's more boomer and I'm like kind of what Gen X, I guess. I don't know. Um, if you were critical of Israel, you you were done. <laughs> like that was it. Your career was over if you were publicly pro-Palestine for sure. You, I mean, you could be critical of Israel within very narrow bounds, like you're for, um, you know, Shimon Peres rather than Yitzhak Shamir or something. But like you couldn't be pro-Palestine. You couldn't talk about that. And that changed. And on top of it, you know, it, this is this is more of an American thing. I don't think this was true with the Europeans as much. But American leftists, as a rule, were also they just had this blind spot for Israel, and they didn't even recognize it. I don't think until they were really forced to much more recently that you could have all these progressive in your head, in one head, all these progressive ideas and progressive politics, and also have this totally racist idea of what Palestinians and Arabs are. And naturally, the Israelis have to, you know, do things the way they see fit. Uh, I mean, back then, Israel was more of a, of a for Jews anyway, a, a socialist country. I mean, it's not even that anymore. But that just massively changed. And, and I think that's, I don't know, you tell me when that happened, but it seems like that just changed. It was the, the war on terror as it dragged on and just became this giant bummer. The demonizing Arabs and um uh, and Muslims, after having slaughtered and displaced so many millions of them, I think for your generation just became a, a bummer. And you didn't already have it like burned into your brains that it's okay to hate them, but have other progressive politics. So I think it's like it's a bunch of things. I mean, I hate to say it, but I think this is actually one of the positive effects of like everyone being online. Mm. Like there are a lot of like bad social effects from that, but everyone, you know, being born with a phone in their hands, it did kind of open this up. Um, I also, it's also one of the also few positive effects of the collapse of like consensus reality. Mm hmm. Because, like, you know, Israel as um, a lighthouse, like a moral standout in the region and super competent and all this shit, that was consensus reality for the longest time. But I think, like, uh, you know how, like, all the Zionists have been saying uh, from the river to the sea is, like, calling for the... Some people say the killing of all Jews in Israel. Some people say the killing of all Jews in the world. <laughs> I was trying to remember the first time I heard that. And I realized it was in 2017 when uh, the DSA was, they were like, you know, ratifying new things for their uh, charter or whatever. And you know how the DSA until like Bernie, it was just like this, weird organization of like 3000 old men who would meet every year and pass a non-binding resolution stating that Hugo Chavez was a dictator, <laughs> but we should have Medicare. Like, yeah. it, 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 like after, you know, those guys um, became outnumbered by younger people and the DSA, like, as you said, couldn't accept this idea that you can be 
left wing on everything except Israel or that mm-hmm. like there is such a thing as like liberal Zionism anymore, really. Um, that I I would say like around that time is when I feel like things started bursting open because mm-hmm. yeah, like 2014 was, it wasn't like this where like destruction of Gaza was observed entirely online, but it was, it wasn't so much filtered through cable news as mm-hmm. you know, 2008 or 2006 right. in Lebanon was, I hate to say this, but how much do you think it might also be that, I, I mean, we forget now maybe how hated and how like despised and opposed and everything people were to the Bush Cheney regime, you know, by the end, and they voted for a guy named Barack Hussein Obama, and he was like the embodiment for younger people until he actually ruled of, you know, something positive, something good. And I think people, I mean, I, I know that he wound up also adding to like the kill and displacement count of Muslims and Arabs in a big way. So he was, a, you know, he was a complete fraud in that way. But just in terms of, it's hard to explain. I mean, Palestinians and Arabs were not considered people even by yeah. liberals. And so I, I just wonder, I mean, you guys can tell me maybe how, how much just the, the, the misidentification or the, you know, the accusation of Obama being a Muslim made people also kind of sympathize on top of the fact that we were killing so many of them in wars. We didn't. Support. Well, yeah, like the, the reaction to Obama becoming president and like the, the meltdown that he's a secret Muslim and that yeah. he was, was born in Indonesia or something like that. I mean, I think it's part of like the, the, you know, the evident connection between racism and hatred of Muslims and Arabs. But yeah. like in, in thinking about this, I, I sort of think about how like among both liberals and conservatives, like when they, when they see this like rather stark polling data, that sympathy for Israel is dramatically eroding in the United States. And it is due yeah. largely to the beliefs of young people. They all come back around to the, whether it, either they can complain about it's TikTok, it's the digital fentanyl, but it comes back to this idea that like our institutions are rotten and kids yeah. have been corrupted by, you know, woke critical race theory. And I got to say that I like, I, they, they have a point there because if you're in, if you're in my generation, like with very few exception, if you went to school, you basically were instilled uh, values and taught about history that says that racism is bad, colonialism also bad, and what America did to its indigenous population and black people in in our not-too-distant history is a great stain on us morally and politically, like that it's an evil that we should seek to confront when we see it in the world. And that is a very hard field to play on if you are an Israel supporter when talking to someone who's under 30 or 40 years old. And I think like in light of like we talked about before, the kind of moms for liberty, Christopher Rufo assault on public mm-hmm. education. I mean, if, if they could reverse engineer uh, a context in which people are taught a version of history that says that racism and colonialism are good, I think mm-hmm. that they would have, you know, an easier go of it. Right. I mean, the, the, I, I would add that you know sort of double that in the sense that when you were raised a jew um in this country and maybe everywhere i don't know but at least the way i was taught it uh you you know you're kind of your your brainwash whatever uh into believing that everybody wants to kill jews yeah um and also that jews have been persecuted i mean it's true you know jews have been persecuted and the nazis did want to kill them but like that is the central story of being a Jew is that you're you're persecuted wherever you go, you're oppressed wherever you go, um, and uh, and and so with some people, 
with a lot of Jews, because you see the polling on also younger American Jews too, with, with a lot of them, like you then naturally will feel, should feel sympathy with the victims who in this case are not the guys in the F-16s or in the Merkava tanks. They're the babies in the incubators. Like it's, it's not hard. Well, I don't and, know, Mark. Uh, I've seen a lot of videos <laughs> that would seem to suggest that there are a lot of victims in those Merkava tanks. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe a, a, a prematurely born Palestinian baby is in an incubator is a technical, according to them. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> um, but like it, it's just it, it's so, you know, it, it's baked in. This problem for Israel is baked in. And that really goes back to. The tr- I mean, Israel, of course, was always was born as a, you know, a settler colony and all that stuff. But like you can make let's leave aside 47, 48 to 67 when it became a new kind of colonial, uh, you know, imperialist colonial country and project after 67, where they clearly wanted to expand a greater Israel and eventually and really settle the West Bank and uh, and slowly drive out one way or another the Palestinians. Like the whole Israel project, it, it kind of played both sides before 67. It was sort of, you know, had one foot in the non-aligned world and the, the anti-colonial movement and so on. But after that, it was like, well, who's our best secret friend? <laughs> our, our best fr- friend forever, secret friend forever. It's South Africa because yeah. we both have the same problem. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and, you know, I, I, this is one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because uh, just for instance, this week, it was announced that the Anti-Defamation League is now classifying Jewish American peace organizations as anti-Semitic terrorists. And like and a, and a big a big feature of the current debate is like these loud denunciations of the idea that Israel is an ethno-nationalist apartheid state. But there's one apartheid state that nobody argues about the fact that it was an apartheid state, and that's apartheid South Africa. And I wanted yeah. to have you on because you wrote an article years ago about yeah. A real, it's the really nasty history of the ADL and its collusion with both the apartheid South African government and American police departments to collude in a massive illegal spying operation on an- American anti-apartheid activists, Arab American civil rights groups, and journalists such as yourself who found your who got, got you found yourself as a target. I wasn't of even this a operation. journalist at yeah. the time. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I was uh, you know I was uh, in my mind like in a, uh, working on it, you know, kind of an aspiring writer, but I was just in college. Uh, and just getting out of college. And I was, until I visited Israel in the early 90s, I was a totally, in my mind, committed Zionist, pro-Israel, uh, you know, pro-Israel military. Um, and, and you know, like, I, not at all on the left. I was like a Republican. I would have con- considered myself until, again, I was like mugged by reality. But at that time I was, yeah. And, um, and this scandal broke. I was, uh, so I was already losing my Zionism. This would be after college and I visited Israel and it just bummed me out. And I, I just thought this is nothing like I thought. And I don't even actually want to think about it. I didn't go straight from pro-Israel to anti-Israel. <laughs> what, Mark, you didn't get laid on birthright? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't do birthright actually. I just, I just went and visited it. And you tried I to do birthright people. as like a 25 year old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I liked the people I met, my family and all their friends, my cousins there. I really liked them. And in fact, they were a big reason of kind of opening my eyes up how fucked that place was. And I wasn't like, I, I wasn't necessarily on the left yet. Like my, material circumstances were pushing me that way, but I definitely wasn't. And before, just before I moved to Russia, this scandal was breaking. And I remember kind of reading about it, thinking, yeah, whatever. 
it was like a real low point in my life. I was pretty much jobless, futureless, broke, living at my dad's, helping my mother. My parents are divorced and my mother and my stepfather was dying of brain cancer at the time. And so I stay at my dad's, go to my mother's, help them out. It was, the whole thing was just really miserable being back in suburban California. Just like I, I, I was having unbelievable panic attacks. And then one day I get this thing in the mail from uh, the San Francisco city council. Uh, my dad's like, Hey, you got something from the San Francisco city council. Like, huh? wow, I'm somebody. I open it up and there's an index card and there's my name. And, um, and I'm listed as a pinko. Like I was probably one of 10 morons at Berkeley who was a, a Republican and I'm listed <laughs> as a, as a pinko. And, um, and, uh, they had my uh, license plate, my driver's license, the address of my last place I lived at in San Francisco, the address of this like left-wing bookstore I worked at in the mission district. And it, to me, it was just humiliating as hell. It was humiliating because it was sort of like, it, it, it just, I just felt like such a failure and, and so humiliated that they would spy on me. And it made no sense. I have to be honest. It made no sense like that they would spy, that they would contract out on behalf of the South African apartheid, you know, secret police to spy on me and anti-apartheid activists. It didn't, it, it took me so long to kind of think about it, but I just put it out of mind. And I went back many years later and looked at it and thought, oh, someday I should actually write about this. So when, um, Paul Carr started up the NSFW Corp. Uh, you know, we talked about potential articles because we actually did print magazine as well as um, online. And I told him the story and, and I went back through all the research. And it's such a crazy story of how the ADL hired this very weird guy who, like, when he was a little kid in the 50s, he only dreamed of being an FBI snitch, turning in <laughs> suspected communists. Um, you know, like a James Elroy yeah. character, Jesus Christ! It, it, I know yeah. it's it's it, yeah in the in the 1950s and and there were these kind of pop culture heroes at the time on TV because J Edgar Hoover had such a good sort of media game, you know that they were turning people who were ex communist. You know, I was a teenage commie uh, communist who went to work for the FBI and that thing. So that's what turned on this guy Roy Bullock, who was also closet homosexual. Um, and he started working for the local police, snitching on, I don't know, local liberals. And then uh, he started doing something for the FBI. And he was sent out on one of those, those international student organizations. It was a very big deal, I think, until Ramparts blew open the CIA angle on it. But he went out there. It's like Gloria Steinem did what Roy Bullock did, which is go out to one of these student festivals where there are communist students and Western students. And then you just spy on everybody and then go back and report to the CIA and the FBI. And, uh, and he did such a good job that, um, you know, he did some more work for the FBI. And although they say that the ADL, the anti-defamation league did not start working with the FBI until the seventies, you know, or maybe later, I, it's definitely not true. Like he got seconded out to the ADL in 1960 and he was sent out to live in uh, Orange County, which was like the, the base of the John Birch Society, which was becoming this big thing. And even, you know, even elements of the FBI weren't sure like how subversive this potentially was or not. Um, and so that's where he, the ADL sent him. So he was probably working for both the ADL and the FBI out there. But, you know, to show you like how, Jewish politics and Israeli politics shifted. So he's working out in, in like Southern California 
mostly, especially in the 60s, on the radical right. But then in the mid-late 70s, he gets sent up to San Francisco. His his cover is he opens up a um, like an antique art shop in the Castro district. And his job is to infiltrate for the ADL, to infiltrate primarily Arab-American organizations, but any liberal organization, ACT UP, anything left-wing. And the reason, you know, again, to us now it's obvious, but it wasn't so obvious at the time. The reason is because the Israelis understood that their politics, the politics of that country, are, ex- are, are hardcore reactionary and racist, and that the problem is no longer going to be the radical right, but liberals and the left, and really like center left through to the left. And um, he was tasked with infiltrating the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, the ADC, which was founded by Senator James uh, Aboris of South Dakota, who is Arabic himself. And he, when he set this up, he was all proud of it. He thought, you know, we're setting up an ADL-like organization, a, a, a liberal civil liberties group, but we're going to be, you know, fighting discrimination against Arabs. But from the ADL's point of view and whoever they're working with, you know, out in Israel or whatever, um, discriminating against Arabs is like the point of Zionism. Yes. So yeah. an, anti, an anti-Arab defamation league would be, yes. uh, it doesn't take too, too long to realize what an existential threat that might be. Exactly. And um, so Roy Bullock, while working for the ADL, infiltrates them, opens up files on 4,500 members of this group, uh, about 15% of the total membership at the time, makes himself so useful to them that they really trust him deeply, like right up to the very top. He winds up leading an Arabic delegation in like 1987 or 88 or 89 when was it? Or the early 90s. But he winds up leading a delegation of Arabs to, to sort of present their case and, and you know, flowers to Nancy Pelosi when she was a, a young congresswoman. And he's leading it secretly working for the ADL and already by this time actually working for South African <laughs> spies, but presented as uh, a, a top member of, of this uh, Arabic uh, of the the ADC was what it was called. And, uh, uh, Mark, there's there's a great part <laughs> in your piece where you discuss how eventually the FBI began wiretapping Bullock and a San Francisco police officer by the name of Gerard, and you talk yeah. about what it must have been like for the FBI to listen to these wiretaps. Were on them, they thought they were investigating, you know, uh, some something happening in San Francisco, and on the wiretaps, it's revealed that the ADL is running a spy ring in dozens of cities across America and in all of them have local police officers of these local police departments (laughs) serving as essentially their moles. Yeah. um, Yeah. uh, You know, scumbag. Well, that's a different uh, spy that they have running in a white nationalist group, but uh, yeah, they have, they have cops, you know, a couple of cops in like all these major cities all around the country. So basically what happened was, this guy named Tom Gerard, who worked in the San Francisco Police Department, which is a very weird police department, by the way. Um, and this guy had his origins really in the Phoenix program. So he was a Vietnam War vet. He worked in the Phoenix program, which, as we know, was like an assassination program, assassination, interrogation, um, counterinsurgency of the most brutal kind, then went to become a San Francisco cop. Why? Because you know, still to this day, people have this idea that San Francisco is the heart of left-wing insurgency in America. I mean, it's it's actually just a, a rich, wretched town right now. But <laughs> uh, 
and so Gerard went to work there. And then uh, in, in the sort of from like 82 to 85 or so, 86, he was seconded back out to the CIA to do Dirty Wars work for Reagan's Dirty Wars in Central America. He, he did interrogation and, um, and sabotage and bombing training for death squads in Honduras, in Guatemala during the, the, um, during the, uh, the genocide there and with um, the Salvadoran National Guard. And it should be added here that, um, you know, Alex O'Day, who was um, a member of this Arab, you know, anti-defamation group, was famously blown up in Santa Ana, California. He was very close to Roy Bullock. He believed Roy Bullock. He didn't know Roy Bullock was a spy. He believed he was, you know, a true volunteer. And he gave Roy Bullock the keys to his office where the bomb went off. And after the bomb went off, Gerard was put in charge of, of, security for other arab americans uh in the bay area uh it it, it was yeah it's dark stuff man yeah i mean like i mean like it it doesn't take too long to to, you know like to to read it to read into this history and then like it becomes clear that like oh uh, the adl and israel we absolutely don't support genocide or apartheid but we certainly work with people who do yeah you know like yeah i mean they go to the genocide and apartheid experts every time it seems like (laughs) yeah yeah, so um, the the way this thing got blown open uh, was that um, there was another guy, David Gervitz, who worked at the ADL office in L.A., whereas Bullock and Gerard worked at the San Francisco office and pretty much ran everybody around the country, all their spies, all their police spies who were spying on anybody who might be critical of Israel, um, all around the country. And this is where, in San Francisco, being considered like a hotbed of liberalism, left-wing activism. They spied on uh, for the South Africans and for the ADL, which I assume was really for Israel. They spied on anybody who was involved in any anti-apartheid protest. And so even, you know, when I considered myself, like I'm not a liberal, I'm a Republican or whatever, uh, at Berkeley, I still like, I participated in the, in the uh, anti-apartheid protest and I was genuine about it. And, and it wasn't like, it didn't seem to me a particularly radical thing. But that's what got me um, spied upon by 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 these people. But anyway, so th- their guy in, in in Los Angeles, this guy David Gervitz, he wasn't making much money, but he was running all these spies, and he he just felt like he was underpaid. But the ADL couldn't pay him more, and he just felt like such a big shot, you know, doing all this dark work with this like former CIA guy who like interrogated people. So he's like, we got to get me a better job and, you know, and I'll continue doing this. So they found out that the Simon Wiesenthal Center's top researcher, uh, his rival across town in Los Angeles, that guy made like almost twice his salary, but he wasn't going anywhere. So they all conspired together. Gerard Bullock and Gervitz conspired to, they knew that, that um, the Simon Wiesenthal guy was going to go undercover on this like white nationalist skinhead retreat out in the forest, out in the mountains somewhere. So they were going to leak to using their own um, operatives within the skinhead, like half of every skinhead movement, half of them are, are spies for somebody. And they were going to basically whack them out Jesus. there. And um, yeah, and, and the way the FBI found out about all this was because Gervitz in another uh, stupid gig that he did, he, uh, Abe Foxman, if you remember Abe Foxman, he was like sure. the face of the ADL all those years. He wanted to write an article in, for the Washington Times, the Mooney on Washington Times, on the Nation of Islam. And so he tapped um, the ADL office's 
in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, which, which had access to FBI files on everything, um, unbeknownst to most FBI people, at least, if not all of them. And he tapped them for more research on the Nation of Islam. So Gervitz is like, I'm going to show them what a good guy I am, and maybe they'll give me a raise. So he uh, steals some FBI files on the Nation of Islam, and then that very classified information winds up in Abe Foxman's article published in the Washington <laughs> Times. The guy's like, holy shit, how did that get there? Like, there's no way anybody knew it. It was, it was you know, classified from our files. It was stolen. So that's why they started wiretapping him. And as they're listening in on these freaks, they realize that they're running like spy operations all around the country and that Gervitz is trying to whack a rival Nazi hunter <laughs> and take his job. And so, the, <laughs> and so they eventually they, they, they have to pull the plug on it because he's about to get he's about to get whacked. So they're like, OK, we got to pull the plug on this thing. And um, I'm just about like before he goes to the the white nationalist campfire event. What do they do? Like they just like secretly load up his car with like locks and bagels. Be like, yeah, we got the merchandise here. They opened up. Oh fuck! I know it's it's so insane. And they also have like the the rival researcher from the Simon Wiesenthal Center. They have his address and car license plate just in case like he escapes from whatever you know a bunch of incompetent skinheads he might get away but at least they'll know where he lives too because they have all this information gerard works in the sfpd and he has access through all the the computer files to everybody's home addresses driver's licenses all that stuff um so they so they have to blow this open and um i, I mean amazingly the sf uh, like the prosecutor's office and the FBI, you know, they raid the ADL's offices. And um, it's looking pretty scary because they really genuinely pissed off the FBI. Like, you know, the FBI can run these operations themselves, but when freelancers get in and do this, and this is, this is treason. I mean, you have, you have Americans spying on behalf of a foreign government, you know, spying on Americans. They were spying on all kinds of Democrats, a, a senator, congressman, senator Alan Cranston, huge Israel supporter, but a liberal. Um, you know, Ron Dellums, uh, who was uh, pretty well known. He's from Berkeley, Oakland. At this time, though, he was the, um, you know, African-American. Like, so basically the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, was spying on an African-American uh, congressman on behalf of the apartheid regime. And he was the head of the House, House uh was the Armed Services Committee, I believe, at the time. Uh, they spied on the ACLU, ACT UP, Los Angeles Times. I was wondering why they, because the LA Times, when you go back to the record, they actually had a, they did a pretty good job, which is not what you would expect from the LA Times. And I think it's because they were pissed that they were being spied on by the ADL on behalf of South Africa. So they did their job. And there's a good record left behind of all that. And, you know, one of the scariest kind of parts of this is, when the police and FBI busted this thing open, they, you know, detained uh, Bullock and uh, and Tom Gerard, the the SFPD guy. What Gerard did was, you know, he he gave his first interview. Everybody blamed everybody else. Everybody kind of denied, and then Gerard um, split for um, uh, the Philippines, which doesn't have an extradition treaty. And when he left, he went to Palawan Island. This is November nineteen ninety two. And he spent about six months there and this didn't make it into my article. So I'll just tell you about it. Cause this is like one of the more shocking parts of it. What he did was he left behind a tourist or briefcase in his police gym locker and, and, and he meant for it to be discovered. And inside this tourist or briefcase were 
it was memorabilia basically or evidence. He was clearly saying, if you come after me more, there's a lot more where this came from. Inside, I'll just read what was in there uh, from his work for the CIA in Central America. Uh, a black executioner's hood with green drawstrings, photographs of bound and blindfolded prisoners in Central America being interrogated by CIA officers, uh, other photos showing CIA officers posing with the heads of Central American death squads, uh, like a dozen different passports with different names, including Tom Clouseau, which he thought was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, That's tradecraft. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, an ID. Uh, he was like a card carrying member of the Salvadoran National Guard, which is Colonel what, Magoo. Was, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and and I, I mean, I got to read a couple quotes here. He said, uh, you know, he was explaining to a reporter. So he talked to a reporter because he wanted this out. And he said, you know, this th- what I did in, in Central America. This was not good guys versus bad guys. This was evil, evil. This was something the devil himself is involved in. And I wanted no part of it. Of course, you know, he's, he's totally full of shit. And then he also left behind um, a file called the International Activities Division Special Activities Group. And it listed over 100 classified names and addresses of members of the CIA's uh, paramilitary division, which at that time was small, much more classified. I don't think people even knew they had a paramilitary division at the time. And he tells the, the LA Times reporter at the time who flew out to, to the Philippines to interview him, he says, that's the who's who of the CIA. I'm just quoting here. Ooh, that's going to make people nervous. Ooh, that's what he says, you know. Um, and so, you know, as you can imagine, uh, they all get off, right? Uh, I mean, everybody, it's in everybody's interest to, to bury this scandal. And the ADL eventually has to settle in a civil suit but the ADL basically says actually all of our researchers spying for South Africa on anti-apartheid people and spying on gays and spying on blacks and and doing other really nasty thing like spying on arabs then like an arab american for example was went to go visit family in the west bank and the ADL sent the israelis their file on him and then he wound up getting arrested and tortured and held for 6 months and the ADL is like, yeah, that's us. Or, or the Los Angeles 7, which was this group of mostly Palestinian Muslims who were arrested because of the ADL on trumped up charges of, of terrorism. And that, that case, it took them 20 years. It was finally thrown out. The judge in it said, this is like the, the worst like atrocity of injustice I've ever seen in all my years on the bench. That was the ADL's. You know, that was Gervitz and, and Bullock. I mean, like in, yeah. in thinking about like the, uh, this particular example and like, as you said, this was in the 80s and 90s. And yeah. I guess what just strikes me is the incredible effort that it takes for organizations like the ADL to like, you know, collude with genocidal CIA officers and the apartheid South African government to do treason against the United States and then get <laughs> away with it. Like the incredible yeah. effort it takes to manage perception of Israel, what it does what it, you know, what it is, um, like it takes a, a, you know, a huge effort to manage this at all times. And, and like, as we talk, started the show talking about, I think you're seeing yeah. the, the breakdown of like, it, it, it can only bear so much weight for so long. And yeah. as long as we're talking about the ADL, uh, this came out the, like this week. So people resurfaced this, um, this, uh, this, 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 this study that the ADL published in uh, January of this year. Uh, headlined anti-Semitic attitudes in America, top line findings. And this is for their center of anti-Semitism oh, yeah. research. And I just want to like 
highlight um, uh, a couple things, like uh, a couple questions they asked on this poll. It's sort of like agree or disagree with this statement. And one of them is Jews have a lot of irritating faults. And I, I think only twenty percent. Doesn't of, every Jew believe yeah, know, that about every Jew? I think only twenty percent of people <laughs> responded that they agreed with that. But I'd like to see the demographic breakdown because if they pulled American Jews on this, it would be like ninety nine percent. Yes, yes, it's it's something we're proud of. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the the other really funny thing is a percentage of Americans who d- agree or disagree with the following statements about Israel and its supporters. And then one of the statements is Israel is not a technology leader. And, and that, that, that's an anti-Semitic belief. If, if you don't use Waze in your car, if you don't accept yeah. it, it, Israel as a leader in the technology sector, you are anti-Semitic. And then to throw on top of all of this, the idea that if you support Palestinian human rights in any way, shape, or form, you are now an anti-Semite. And I just I mean, like, uh, well, I was going to say, so that must mean if you don't believe that this brilliant, amazing, high-tech electronic fence surrounding Gaza and keeping Israel, you know, the, the local kibbutz is uh, totally safe. If you believe that they weren't very good, you're anti-Semitic. <laughs> you must believe that they actually functioned brilliantly on October 7th, you know, because you can't criticize Israel technology. But like, I mean, I, I guess it just it strikes me about like like the desperation that this kind of breakdown in public perception management is is causing, especially when like you look at polls of young yeah, Jewish Americans. Amazing. And whether it's yeah. not that they have sympathy for the Palestinian cause, I think it's largely that they don't have any, if not sympathy, then they don't feel any connection with Israel because they're like, what the fuck? I live yeah. in New York. Like, I, yes. I don't have anything that to do with Israel. What, why am yeah. I being in, Why am I being sort of shanghaied into this fucking yes. cause that we can all see is just killing thousands of people every day? But, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, when when this scandal broke, so if this scandal broke today, you know, it would have legs. When it broke then, it was you know, kind of a big local story in San Francisco and LA made a little bit of the national press, but the, it it weirded people out so much because it, it went, it was such a cognitive dissonance moment. Like, wait a minute, how is it possible? The ADL, which people identify in their mind with fighting right wing civil rights, a civil know, rights organization yeah, and civil yeah. rights organization. Yeah. It would be like, yeah, exactly. Like if the NAACP worked for, uh, you know, work for South Africa, Rhodesia. apartheid, <laughs> the Rhodesian yeah, exactly. government, work yeah. for Rhodesia to spy on anti-Rhodesia blacks. You know, it, 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 like most of the people they're spying on were Jews, the ADL and the South Africans. And so it was easier in a sense to do the management perception because nobody wanted to hear it or believe it. Even when it came out, it sounded like it sounded so dark. It sounded like almost like a, um, like a far right paranoid fantasy of how evil, the ADL could be or how evil Jews could be. It's like, no way could that possibly have happened. So I think people just didn't want to believe it. And it, 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 it took a long time for people to really in this country to adjust. And, and a long time means generational change uh, to looking at what Israel is as it is. But like, you know, and like I said, now they're facing a, a real gener- yes. generational cataclysmic shift in public opinion. Yep. So like, I mean, I don't know if anyone's doing any reporting on this, but like, what are the chances that the ADLs just stopped doing this when they got caught in the in the eighties and nineties? And like, <laughs> like how how far does one have to imagine what they're up to now? For instance, surveilling yeah. activists with Jewish Voice for Peace, for instance, or like a Columbia University Palestine Solidarity student group. It's for sure they are, and I, I you know, I think they still have because one of the things they did, they like organized junkets uh, for cops like Tom Gerard. 
and other cops, their their moles in different cities, uh, junkets to go out to Israel. And of course, to see how they oppress local Palestinians and bring back their brilliant findings, you know, to these police departments. And I think the ADL does that openly now, if I'm not mistaken, like they do these police junkets. So I, I think in a sense, the ADL, it's like, you know, they, they both, it's, it's very much like Israel itself and all the Zionists, like they want to have it both ways. They want to be both the, the sort of the Nietzschean hardcore, no bullshit, you know, we're going to kill the morality of strength. but also, yeah, the, but also like the greatest victims alive. And if you say one thing critical to me, you are worse than Himmler or something. So, it, yeah. Type male ass. Decadence and anarchy. He said, he smiled. Something to dance to. Well, uh, the, le- the last thing I want to talk to you about today is sort of, uh, I don't know, the lighter side of propaganda or propaganda that actually has news I can use, news that I, <laughs> I didn't know about uh, until this week. And that is, of course, the existence of an elite unit within the IDF that exists to, how shall I put this, sperm jack dead people. <laughs> the IDF sperm retrieval unit is, is something I learned about this week. Um, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say on this, but like this is this was one of the more bizarre pieces of propaganda. Like, I think, Felix, you commented on the video they put out on it. She hugs Shia tightly and knows she must fulfill Yahav's dream to create more life. So Shiley puts out a call for the unthinkable to retrieve his seed and be able to continue growing their family. And like somebody storyboarded this animation like this went through several <laughs> yeah. layers of decision making yeah, processes that, that that was my first thought was like okay anytime that like a big company or institution or in this case a country produces and then posts um you know some in-house made advertising it's got to go through like at least like 20 people uh 20 people they got the treatment for it. They were like, okay, so um, we're going to do a sort of 2014 webcomic style thing about the special military units we have of guys who um, put cattle prods up the assholes of dead soldiers <laughs> and, and sperm jack them so we can outbreed the Arabs. Um, that sounds great. Um no one at any point thought this looks insane to everyone. Uh, I just like if you're going to if you need to tell a story about the sperm jacking unit, like why would it be about one of the times that they failed? That's the other yeah. thing is like they 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 tried to sperm jack this dead guy uh, because his wife was like, please help me. please, You know, one kid yeah. isn't enough when my husband's dead please jack his sperm. And they like fucked it up apparently. And then right after in the video, right after they are like, unfortunately they couldn't jack his sperm. <laughs> they do, uh, you know, bring our hostages back home thing, yeah. which is all those I thought, photos of all those kids. And, that was oh, the God, most insane yeah. thing to me because it's like, wait, like are these two things connected? Like, are you saying yeah. that we have to get them back home or else their sperm will go bad? It is so grim, man. I, I, they're, they're insane. I don't know. You know, you, you look at that. I, I mean, the poor guy who died 
couldn't even have dignity in death. It's like now he's known as the corpse that couldn't come. <laughs> like it's just brutal. Uh, Thanks a lot. You know, it's like you know, it's a question like you know, like the whole thing with the guillotine. Like, how long does your head stay alive? Like, yeah. can you look at your body? Well, apparently for your dick, it's like about three hours. You got about about three hours left in nut after you die, yeah. and they got the sperm retrieval unit on it. But I mean, I don't know. I guess there's something like in highlighting that story. There's something additionally ghoulish especially in light of all of the children and indeed babies that are being killed in gaza right now like dying in incubators because there's no oxygen they're like yeah. oh it's not enough that we just we have to kill all of these uh infants but we need to like uh like you know milk the fucking prostate of our dead soldiers who are doing it so that we can have more babies yeah it is like it is it's a very efficient encapsulation of modern day israel because it's mm -hmm. you know you have birth rate stuff uh body horror uh, um, a, a, mil a military that just has like way more resources than they even need or seem to know what to do with. I don't know if you guys have noticed like the severe rank inflation problem that the IDF has. Everyone's um, a colonel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are yeah. like no privates yes. in the IDF is something I've noticed. Yeah. Everyone's a lieutenant colonel or a major yeah. or a master sergeant. Uh, my friend Charlie, he figured out the IDF is one quarter the size of the entire U.S. military, but only has a thousand fewer officers. <laughs> what? Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, 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 and that's too like, many chefs. That's, that explains <laughs> too a many lot. cooks. It, wow. it really does. Right. And yeah. like you got to figure the sperm jacking unit guys like. <laughs> Do you get promoted based on how many successful like cattle proddings you do? Like, can you become, it seems like you could become a general doing anything. So could you become like a brigadier general through that unit alone? Oh yeah. Yeah. Four, a four star, you know, corpse um, jacker. I mean, it, like, really, it, it really, insane. it really puts a new spin on uh, never leave a man behind. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much like, they're thinking because they're so twisted they're, they're thinking like, okay, well, we got a problem because they're showing a bunch of babies that we killed. And so we need something even more heart rendering. How about sperm, you know, sperm in a corpse's balls? Like, you know, we, you think <laughs> yeah, we got yeah. babies? It's like, we I, have sperm yeah, like, stuck you know, in a corpse's like, balls. Uh, the, now top that, Palestine. Like, yeah, you know? yeah, it's these, even these younger than any baby they have. <laughs> yeah. It's like these Palestinian animals won't even, these animals won't even let a guy nut before they kill him so he can like shoot into a Ziploc bag and send it home. It's, it's, it's so gruesome, man. It's, uh. It's and it they're just they're they're fucking degenerates. I mean, I've seen you, you know, also Felix like talking about how uh, it, it has been shocking, like from the beginning of this, just how, you know, incompetent, incompetent and weird. Uh, you know, it's a combination of the two. They've been all along. And, you know, um, like, I think this is just another like a more kind of grotesque example of 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 that and how like unaware that they are of how fucking weird and degenerate they are. Like how weird they look to the rest of us. Yeah, it's I it's I think it's partially a consequence of like, you know, culture can't really survive in an ethno-nationalist project. Mm. And it's like I would say like just get the overall weirdness and off-putting tone of all the stuff they've put out. It's sort of a, res a, a result of like their current culturelessness.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like an, an, another byproduct of this uh, this weirdness, it takes me back to what I opened the show talking about, is that it's not just them talking to each other and displaying to the world just how absolutely cracked their entire culture is. But now we have the president of the United States and the State Department co-signing all of this absolutely bizarre, bizarre and monstrous behavior. And it's just like it is a moment of, of extreme humiliation to, to be an American right now. And like this is, you know, like on, on par with the Iraq war WMD lies for some like for some reason, like this seems even more appalling to me, like both in how stupid it is and how evil it is. Like I, I just, I just visceral, can't, I just can't man. shake it. Like, how do they yeah. expect to keep this going? Yeah, it's it's more visceral because we're seeing so much. It's like this this small little area, and we're, and we're getting so much, so many images, and we're watching it happen in real time. I mean, you couldn't. It was a lot more sanitized the coverage of the Iraq War, and it, there weren't so many cameras around. Everybody has a camera now. And the, frankly, the scale of the killing is really unprecedented. I think it was the Washington Post even came out with something showing that the scale of the killing of children in this century, and there have been wars where children die a lot, usually from like deliberate, you know, artificial famine, malnutrition, but the actual delib- like targeting and slaughtering of children, there's no precedent for this. How could you not be a human and not be bothered by that. Um, it, it's, I, I have to say for my, for me, I've seen a lot of wars in my days, you know, I've had, <laughs> had to watch, you know, uh, a, a lot of wars and bicker and, you know, rant and whatever about them. But I have not, I don't think I experienced a war that was more of a kind of mind fuck to me and, and really like messed with my emotions quite like this one. I think it's probably true for a lot of people. I don't know about you guys. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, and and I guess like the other object lesson we're seeing right now is how, just how, how much of a democracy we really have in this country, because like, obviously foreign policy is completely removed from democratic consent, but like, just even for like running for reelection, if you're the Democrats, like 80% of Democrats want a ceasefire, 80%. And they're just being told to like at no point is has anyone asked representatives of the Biden administration, like, what do you know that 80 percent of your voters don't like we'll make the argument to them, like convince them. And it's just the sheer lack of even trying to persuade or convince anyone. It goes back to what I was saying. It was just this is a raw demonstration of power because they're like, we yeah. know you're going to vote for us anyway. What are you going to do? But like, no, sit it or out or not? Yeah, just you know. But a, another way is sort of like, yeah. I mean, they probably believe that they don't believe they're going to lose. It just can't cross their yeah. mind. But it's pretty clear that the empire, as they see it, and the interests of the empire, as they see it, in their craggly old brains, supersede even losing the presidency to Trump. And and Israel is, I, I you know, I don't know. This is how I see it, and. When we talked to Muin Rabani about it, he, he had a similar view of it. I mean, the the people in power now, the, the foreign policy class, really believes that Israel's interests are, uh, are identical, aligned with with the American empires, and you know that that Israel is a um, uh, what is it like a an immovable uh, um, aircraft carrier, or whatever. You know, it's it's it is a pillar of the U.S. empire, and it was so profoundly humiliated. It's like, what would the Romans do? Well, you know, maybe the Romans would contract out some butchers like the Israelis to, to teach uh, the upstarts a lesson. But it's very, it's just very imperial brutality. And they seem to be willing, they're so hell bent on preserving the, um, 
the image and the power and the uh, prestige of the empire that it's like they're willing to lose their own base. They're willing to lose their own fucking elections because that's how much this means to them. It's it's they're going to lose so much more. I think I think, you know, when you see the, the scale of the protest, when you see what's happening generationally, they're going to lose so much more. Uh, but they can't. They can't. I mean, I, it, I think I like guess. the entire project, the entire project of Western liberalism is just wheezing right now. And they have nothing yeah. to offer anyone anymore. They have nothing to say to people anymore. And I think there's a certain relief that they're feeling right now of just not having to pretend anymore and just going, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. This yeah, is what we believe it, in. This is what we this is who we are. I It's fascinating to me that like the one like Western liberal leader um, in Macron who like is it going to die within the next ten years? Yeah, He's the he's the only one who's like, guys, like we're fucking this up. Uh, I uh, 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 ceasefire yeah. now, please. We're ruining the whole fucking thing. I want to keep doing this, guys. Please. Yeah, Biden's going to be eating pudding or in the ground within four years. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. give a shit. <laughs> I don't know if he's I think he's going to be eating pudding within a year, man. I can't believe he's going to make it to the next election. Like this he's he's betting like everything. Whatever is left of his metabolism, he's put it all on like, you know, red 32 like on the <laughs> Israel war, man. Like and that's it. Then he's done. He's spent. I think he's putting it, it, is, it is pretty he's amazing. Putting it all on the yeah. a red devil amphetamines uh, to keep him going. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I mean, it is also pretty amazing how quickly they pivoted from, you know, um, the, the Ukraine war, which they love so much, as they all would write and say, because we're the good guys. And this is a civilizational war between, you know, Western democracy, freedom and our civilization versus bad Eastern authoritarian barbarism and flouting of international laws. And, you know, you believe bombing hospitals and bombing schools and violating international laws. Ah, fuck it. Israel, kill them all. You know, <laughs> yeah. like on a dime. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, Ukraine, who you guys, you screwed up your counterinsurgency, screw it. But Israel, do whatever you need to do. Whatever we said yesterday, fuck it. Ignore it. Do what you have to do. It's like, it's, and to them, it makes perfect sense. I think amongst each other, it's like, yeah. We're not being, you know, we're not being hypocrites. We're, we're for our team. I don't know. It's, 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 um, it is confusing for their base. Very confusing. All right. Well, we'll leave you in that state of confusion and uh, wrap, wrap <laughs> things up here for today's show. I just want to thank again, Mark Ames for joining the show and to say thank you, Mark Ames for a radio Warner. And, you know, I've been a, been a fan of yours for a long time. So it was really great talking to you on today's show. Yeah, it's, thanks for having me. It, it's a huge honor for us. Um, I wanted to say earlier that, like, I, I mean, I don't think this show would exist without Radio Warner. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, no, I, I've just been listening to it for like fucking ten years at this point. <laughs> we have been around that long. I know we we accidentally kind of stumbled into to this because we had no money. <laughs> we thought we'd make a few extra <laughs> bucks, and it turned out podcast is like. We who failed, you know, in everything and never figured out how to make money, uh, stumbled into this to make a few extra bucks. And it turned out like we were, you know, we, we called it early or Many something. Such cases. We, got, we got very lucky. Yeah. But I just want to say thank you guys, uh, like, you know, for, for bringing me on. And, and I, I'm not, it's not just log rolling here. I, I genuinely do get my, I love your show and I genuinely get my politics and my, 
You know, what are the kids into? What's the kids slang? Japanese. <laughs> like I've learned so much slang. Um, I, I learned porn slang from you guys. News you can Sorry. use once again. Uh, <laughs> so uh, once again, Mark Ames, Radio Warner, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. Till next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.